I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. Our guest today is Jake Denson. In February of 2015, at age 29, Jake was hard at work building a life and career in television development and production in Los Angeles, California. One month later, Jake's life was turned upside down when what he thought was a simple skin rash turned out to be acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. AML is characterized by the rapid growth of abnormal white blood cells that accumulate in the bone marrow and interfere with the production of normal blood cells. Immediately following the diagnosis, Jake took a leave from his job, moved to New York, and spent the two months migrating between intensive chemotherapy, radiation, and ultimately a bone marrow transplant. He has been in remission now for 17 months. At a time when others were focusing on building families and careers, Jake was forced to focus his energy on surviving the daily challenges of living with a life-threatening illness. Jake is here today to talk about his experience with our listeners. Welcome, Jake. Thank you. When you got that skin rash, was there any part of you that was worried that something was really wrong? No. I I was just on the beach, and I came in off of it and just noticed it on my ankle. And I've been around the ocean for most of my life, so I just figured it was just one of those things where you get a couple red dots in a in a grouping. And I didn't really think anything of it. It wasn't it didn't sound any alarms whatsoever. So what'd you do? I mean I did nothing because I was, you know, <laughs> invincible when you're <laughs> when you're, you know, you know, in your twenties you don't really think about it. You're just like Nothing can hurt me, so it doesn't. It's probably nothing. And then I just went about my weekend. And Monday, I noticed it was still there on my ankle and a little bit on like my upper quad, I guess you would say. And I was like, that's weird, but still didn't do anything about it. And then it was still there Tuesday. And I was like, it's probably, I mean, I wasn't worried still, but I was just like, this is annoying. I want to get rid of it. And so I just called uh, one of my good friends out there. His stepdad's a doctor. I had seen him a few times, and he was like, sure, come in. I'll just give you some cream, and we'll get you out of there. And he looked at it Wednesday, and he wasn't concerned, but he wasn't sure. So he gave me some cream, but he was just like, look, I'm going to take some blood. And I said, all right. So, I mean, I was a little nervous, I guess, but not. My main question was, can I go to Las Vegas this weekend? That's what I was planning on doing. And he was like, sure, go. It's not a problem. And then I came back, and he called me Monday, and he was like, it's a problem. I was like, oh, okay. Got it. So how'd that conversation go down? You know, <laughs> I have to say, he's a great doctor. I, I would never – I, but he just kind of just told me. And he braced me a little bit. He, So he called me, I want to say, early on Monday when I was at work. And he was like, the numbers look – wrong or like off can you come back down now and we can redraw some blood and i said sure uh which then it started to be like what do you mean wrong and so they drew it again and 
they ran some like fast tests, I guess, at another like separate places because they wanted to make sure it wasn't an error on the human side, right? Uh, which it wasn't. And then he called me back at like five o'clock and he was like, yeah, I have some tough news. And I was like, can I come down there? I don't really want to do this over the phone. And he said, sure. So I drove to his office, which is like 10 minutes away. And he was like, yeah, man, you got uh, blood cancer. I mean, it, leukemia, it was kind of, I don't want to say like I knew something was up by that point, but in the morning when he's calling you and telling you about the numbers being wrong, you know something's not right. So it was, it didn't, it didn't hit me for sure right away is what I can say about it. And when he told me, I didn't, I didn't really know anything about it, obviously, and I didn't know the severity of it, but I didn't want to know the severity of it. So I just simply asked him, like, put it in a layman's term. And he was like, look, you didn't get hit by a bus, but it's not a layup either. It's not like, yeah, I'll take a pill and continue on my day. And I was like, okay, I can, I can deal with that. And that was pretty much it. And then that was Monday, and I was in isolation in Cedar sinai on Tuesday, and I was in New York on Saturday, and I was starting chemo the following Wednesday. So I found out on a Monday, was in New York Saturday, and then less than a week and a half later was starting. That was efficient? It was, again, well, not again. It was extremely lucky I would say uh I always felt like I was you know I got right into Cedars they just happened to have like an isolation available he's his primary out of Cedars uh and why isolation well because I guess and it's funny you read the uh up top you were like this is the this is what the disease is. Uh-huh. I didn't even know. Truly, I didn't know that because I did no research on it. I didn't want to know anything about it. Uh, but isolation because essentially I'm just susceptible to anything and everything because my of my blood cell count. And that's why you had the rash. That was the rash. But actually, it wasn't a rash. It was <laughs> my blood cells were bursting on the inside and you could see it on the skin. That's how it was coming up. But most people find out about having this disease because they get sick because they can't fight off anything so that's not how it happened with me that it happened because of this rash uh so you go into isolation so you don't get more sick before you have to start fighting off this disease uh which again is another reason i felt fortunate because i was completely healthy going in to trying to fight it off whereas most people are not they find out because they get a really bad cold or a flu or something else because they can't fight it off. So you chose in that moment not to even know what your diagnosis was. I mean, I knew the, I knew what it was called, so I could tell people what it was called. Uh, but I did not want to know, well, like, percentage of success in terms of treatment. You weren't, I didn't... You weren't Googling. No, no, that was the last thing I wanted to do. Because I just know, unfortunately, I have had experience, like I would say most people with cancer in some capacity. Uh, so I know that 
as dire as something can look or as easy and fixable as something can look, there's always, you know, exceptions or it, it's it's such a case-by-case basis. Um, so I didn't want to look at general numbers because they don't really apply to me individually. I didn't feel. Uh, and that coupled with the fact that I obsess over sneakers I'm going to wear. So why, if, if it was, uh, if it, if, if I, if I Googled one word, it would have turned into four days straight of just overanalyzing, which I knew wouldn't have been productive for what I had to do at that point. So I didn't know anything. I mean, that's impressive that you knew yourself well enough to not go down the, a road that would have been not so good for you. Well, it, I think it's only because I had been down that road so many times. Like, it's in not. Other, it's, in other yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like I'm like, I'm my uh, my will is not that good. Uh, <laughs> I I can't. It's yeah. It's well, but let's but let's give you some credit because you, here you find you're completely surprised. It sounds like to find out you have a potentially life-threatening condition. Sure. And in that moment, most people would feel some sense of panic somewhere. And we, I mean, most of us, when we're feeling panic, don't necessarily use the best judgment. This sounds like it was good judgment for you to not turn on your computer. Um, I would agree. So what was your support system in those first days, weeks? I mean, it was... It was as good as you could hope for. It was exceptional. Um, I had incredible family that was just constantly there for me. Uh, friends who were constantly there for me. Former employers um, who were, you know, calling me and checking in on me. Uh, and my current employer, my uh, who I was working for at the time, he was... It's extremely lucky to be working for him because he was just like, "Go take care of it." I mean, we don't—you don't have to worry about a thing. Like, we'll keep you on the payroll. Like, don't worry about health insurance. You're you're good. Just go take care of yourself. Uh, so between that and being in New York, which is where I'm from, that area anyway, um, my family was there every day with me. Friends were there every day with me. Um, and the doctors I had were, for my money, the best. I, I, don't, I mean, I have nothing to compare it to, obviously, uh, but they were they were great. So, I don't, I don't, I couldn't envision a better support system. I would say. What did you learn about being a patient? That's interesting. What did I? Um, I would just say I relinquished control. Of myself, um, I just learned that I I didn't there there was nothing I could do I there I couldn't like you know train to to have the chemotherapy work more than it would have worked anyway. I couldn't have like run miles or you know worked out so that I could take in the radiation and or the the bone marrow transplant uh any better so i i just learned to like allow myself to 
a, I mean, I was just a vessel at that point. Like it was, it was just like you guys, these doctors are smarter than everybody else. They whatever they say, we're gonna do, and we'll let the nurses and people in the hospital just do their job. So I, I didn't, I had no say. I would say I didn't, uh, I, I didn't take any active part in it. Which the doctors were like, you're kind of the ideal patient because most people, <laughs> most people, they're like, now, is this the right medicine to have? Like, I've, I've read that, you know, this is not OK in certain areas. And I was like, I mean, I'm already dying. Like, what 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 could you do worse? Like, I trust you to do your job. Um, so you were not micromanaging. No, uh, no, <laughs> absolutely. My dad tried and my mom for sure tried, but I kind of laid the. I put my foot down early. Uh, we had a meeting with like the head doctor who was on my case, and then uh, like the fellows or whatever. The other doctors were in the room when I was sitting in there, and it was me and my immediate family, which is we're pretty big. There's I have two older brothers and a younger sister, and my parents. And the the doctor, who was a great guy, started talking, and about like three sentences in. My dad was like, well, let me stop you right there. He was like taking notes and my mom was writing thing, everything down. And I felt for them. What did you believe about your your prognosis? I didn't think about the future at all. The only thing I thought about was, you know, like, what can we do today to to help see it, help get to tomorrow, essentially. Uh, so there was no... From prognosis to today, it was not a lot. Or not today, I can't say that. Uh, but until, you know, end of the summer, like a couple of months after progno- or, uh, the bone marrow transplant, I'd never really thought about the future beyond, like, that next day or week. Did you think about dying? Of course, yeah. I mean, we're here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that was what I thought was something really important in the beginning because it was definitely a concept as a child that I I don't want to say obsessed over, but it definitely hit me. The, the second I, I realized the notion of like eternal nothingness or that as a possibility, I became petrified from like 10 to 14, 15, 10 to, I just lied, 10 to like 28, 29. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it would go down periodically. You know, in the beginning, it was like every few hours I would think about it, and it would slowly taper off as I got older. Uh, but it was definitely something I feared. Um, but I learned over time that it was like a healthy fear. But I knew that if I didn't deal with that up top, it would it would be building, and it would. It just would not be good. It wouldn't be good to have throughout the process because it's going to come up. And if I don't have some kind of, you know, if I'm not settled on it in some way, it's just going to work so counter to everything else that needs to be happening for me to survive that I can't obsess over it while I'm fighting. So I need to figure it out beforehand. So you... So if I'm understanding you, it sounds like you had kind of a preoccupation with death sure, uh, as a child and, and into adulthood and maybe a few minutes before you found that rash. Uh-huh. And then when you found out, like, whoa, I actually have something, you sort of surrendered 
any understanding or knowledge of what it was you had beyond following the steps you were told to take. Uh huh. And it sounds like you had some like major conversation with yourself about how to move forward. Well, let's be let's be clear. I have major conversations with myself on a Tuesday. It's not that was not abnormal. Uh, <laughs> the what wasn't was that it was like okay, we, you, I need to stop like you know questioning it and and come to some answers that I'm okay with. What have you learned about yourself that you didn't know before? Um, everything. <laughs> uh, everything, everything. I, I do. I mean, I'm not the same person I was before. I, I don't. I, I would imagine it would be hard to be. Uh. So I, I would just say I just learned. I don't take anything for granted anymore. I am well aware of my mortality now. Um, I don't really sweat anything anymore. I used to worry about a lot of stuff. Now I don't really worry about anything, uh, which is not ideal. I'm still trying to find a balance. I had a honeymoon period afterwards where it was like I literally didn't care about anything. And I was just so happy every day to like open my eyes and I'm like, life is the best. This is this is the best egg sandwich I've ever had in my life. This is awesome. Everything's great. And it's is that way still to this day. But it's definitely tapered in the sense that like the first few months after I was, you know, I guess out of the woods you could say, a little bit anyway. Um it's an ongoing process, but uh I was on another level and it's slowly coming back down to normal where it's like i'll yell at people in my car for not using a signal uh that's back uh and you know the day-to-day grind is is working its way back in but it's still under this you know lens or cloud of like everything is great everything it's all bonus time at this point so when you say like what did you learn about yourself it's like I learned everything about myself. I learned now that like it's a completely it's a completely different self at this point. Being a young person who gets so so sick and um, goes through what you've been through, like I would imagine there are differences between you and your peer group that are just rather rather obvious. You're right. It's I I feel much more of an outsider now than I did prior, but it's not. I think that's natural. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't try to fight it the same way I wouldn't try to fight the, the, what's happened in the past. It's just something I have to work out at this point. Uh, I, I've had friends who have started to tell me something and then stopped themselves and been like, "I can't tell you. I can't complain about this to you. Like, what, what am I? What am I doing here?" And I was like, "Look, if we're gonna break it down every time to cancer." then we're going to have nothing to talk about. You know what I mean? Like, if if you can't tell me about how, you know, this project you're working on is falling apart or, you know, you're having problems with your girlfriend because it's small potatoes compared to cancer, we'll literally just sit in silence now for, <laughs> for the rest of the car ride. You know what I mean? Like, so it, that's for me to figure out. It's not for you to figure out. Uh, but it's definitely something that it, it makes me feel... Uh, at least right now anyway, that I'm on a different wavelength uh, than the majority of people that I'm around. Um, 
but I'm working on it. When you learned that you needed a bone marrow transplant, how did that work with with your family? So the bone marrow transplant is, and again, like I only know what they told me, it's essentially a, at this point now uh, a blood transfusion. And so you need someone who's a match to you in terms of a few different things, but blood type obviously, but there's a couple different things that I don't know. But um, there's about a 25% chance that a sibling can be a match. And I was, again, lucky and fortunate that my brother, my second brother, uh, Jeff, was a perfect match, which was great to begin with. A perfect match because they'll go with something as low as like 95%, 97%, not a non-perfect match uh, just to kind of get the job done. But he was a perfect match, 100%, so that was great. Um he was willing to do it, which was nice. He didn't hold any grudges from, like, earlier ping pong matches when we were younger. <laughs> he wasn't like, you know what? Just go ahead and die. I don't want any part of this anymore. You're, I'm, I'm over it. Uh, and uh, he was also this this thing or this category called CMV negative, which was really good, apparently, uh, in terms of fighting off diseases during the transmission i don't know uh i'm probably saying it wrong but it, it was a perfect match it was a very good match uh and we were both males under 35 uh so he was my donor uh and we had we got just enough baby blood cells out of him um that they kind of emptied me brought me to the edge and then filled me up with him and then slowly tried to bring me back so I was really lucky that my one of my brothers, uh, or one of my siblings, I should say, my sister was not a match. Neither was my oldest brother, but my second brother was a match and was willing to do it. <laughs> Did that change your relationship with him? Um, yeah, he resented me. You know, he he was like, "You're taking my lifeblood." Literally, uh, no. He, uh, it's. Uh, I think we were close before, but it's definitely some type of unspoken. We're, we're 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 pretty close uh, now. Um, I un I understand the sacrifice he made. Uh, there was a lot to go into, you know, preparation for giving the amount of blood he had to give, uh, things he had to do that had to have been hard uh, for his day to day, and like traveling to New York. He lives in New Orleans. Um, I am grateful forever. There's, you know what I mean? Like, I owe him life. What have you learned about your relationships? I mean, are there people that surprised you? Yeah, for sure. That was, uh, <laughs> that, that was something that was, that was big for me, uh, throughout the process. Like, I, I moved to across the country after I graduated college. Right. So that was 2008. And I didn't I came back for holidays and like once or twice a year. But, you know, you you lose touch with high school friends, college friends, uh, people you grew up with. Um, and what surprised me was when I came back, it was like. It, it was like I was like greeted by like everyone that I had ever like known essentially or were friends with and they were just always there and like there for me 
which was uh, surprising. Um, and I just like did not feel I, I felt so grateful how great and like amazing those people were my friends and family and and everybody I just couldn't believe like the, the support that they gave me so it 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 definitely showed me something that I didn't I didn't question it before I just never really like considered it that like they'll be there which they were uh so it showed me like you know the friends that I had and continue to have are incredible. Like they're the best and uh, just feel really lucky to have them and family too. Obviously I don't want to leave them out, but like you kind of expect your family to be there. You know what I mean? If a family member wasn't there, I'd be like, dude, where, where are you? Like, what's up? Uh, but friends, you can understand, you know, they have their own lives. They have their own families. They have things going on, especially ones you lose touch with. You don't expect them to be, sitting by your bed till 4 a.m. watching a baseball game. You know what I mean? It's like they have stuff to do. They have jobs. Um, but they were there, like, the entire time, which was really nice and surprising. And it was great. I learned that my support system was was vast, I guess, and there. Jake Denson, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Elfant, and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you can take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. 
Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii. U.S. only. 